The fundamental goal of this course is to orient us to the subject of sex and sexuality in some of its key biblical, theological, social, um, philosophical, psychological, and biological aspects. So we want to think about it from many of these different perspectives and integrate these into a more com comprehensive Christian approach to these issues. And the secondary goal of the course is to learn how to integrate biblical interpretation into theology and then how to connect that theological reflection with broader analysis of the world. And so a lot of the time we're doing exegesis of scripture or we're doing theological reflection, but those don't necessarily integrate with broader studies of um, reality, our science, things like that. What I'm hoping to do is within this course to show some of the ways that we can fit these things together and how we think eth ethically as a result of that. The structure of this week is broadly as follows. On the first day, we're going to go through an introduction, which this is, creation and fall. The next day, um, tomorrow, biblical background in narrative, cult, wisdom, and the Gospels. The third day, New Testament perspectives on men, women, marriage, the church, and the new creation. Fourth day, on Thursday, sexual difference and the sexes in philosophy, the natural sciences, and the changing character of contemporary society. And then on Friday, gender and God, and then men and women in society and the church. So the goal of all of this is to start off with scripture, have a firm foundation within the biblical vision of the sexes. Rather than starting primarily with our questions, I want to start with the text and see what emerges from the text itself. Often I think one of one of the concerns I have with our discussions of the sexes so often within the current context is we have the pressing questions of our culture and we bring those to the text and aren't sufficiently attentive to the text itself and the questions that arise from it. And so what I'm hoping to do is to listen carefully to the text, see some of the structures and ways of thinking that emerge from the text itself and then work out from that into some of the questions that we have within our culture we'll be able to frame them a bit better as a result of that and I think understand where we are standing, that we are standing in a posi particular position that is not a neutral standpoint. Um, we'll understand the assumptions and the concerns and the other things that we're bringing to the text and how sometimes those can be at odds with the interests of the text itself. So to begin by understanding our starting point, we read the Bible for the most part, and we think about Christian faith in the context of modern society, which has a number of features that need to be taken into account if we're going to be reading the Bible well, particularly on a subject such as this one. So we live in a contemporary technological society. If you read um, the chapters 18 to 20 of um, Man and Woman in Christ, that's one of the things that he emphasizes. The difference between traditional and technological society, and the significance of a shift from ordering society around relational principles to ordering society around functional principles. And if we are to understand sexuality at all, and the sexes, this really is, it's imperative that we start with this point, because it's such a significant shift for understanding what has taken place. So breaking down this particular shift to technological society. There are a number of ways we can talk about it. One of the things that Ephraim Radner points out in his recent book, A Time to Keep, is that there has been something he calls 
the transition. So the movement from a society where the realities of birth and death were very prominent within the experience of people within the society to a society where those things are surds, things that seem out of place. They do not feature within the regular experience of people within the society. They take place behind closed doors in sterilized environments. And for the most part, our lives are not impacted by these realities in the ways that they would have been a few generations ago. Part of that is increased in increased medical technology, um, the ways that we have antibiotics, the ways that we have safer um, procedures, more sterile environments for medical procedures, and just general better health. It means that we can keep these realities more at bay. We enjoy a higher standard of living. We're less dependent upon natural realities. And so our understanding of our bodies and our identities as human beings is shaped by this transition. Um, it has changed our character as a society, the way that we relate together. It's changed relationships between the generations. It's changed relationships between the sexes. It's changed the way that we think about paradigmatic human beings. What is the paradigm for thinking about anthropology? Do we think about ourselves as generative human beings? Um, this is one of the things that Radner points out, that a generative being is someone who's defined not just as a detached individual, but as someone who's within a movement through time, someone who bears a legacy of those who have gone before, and someone who will leave a legacy in their turn, um, that we are descended from others, and we will have children and descendants in our turn. And so there's a transition through society. We can't think of the human being as a, an endpoint, as it were. Um, the human being is always, we're always moving through time. And we are um, not detached individuals, but we are those who are related to others in deep and real ways. Some further features of technological society. One is abstraction. Now, there are many ways in which we abstract from reality. And abstraction is a tremendous tool of power. I mean, if you want to control and if you want to act effectively within reality, abstraction is one of the most effective ways to do this. When you can take principles and structures within reality, recognize patterns, and step back. So it's not just about particular entities, but recognizing these larger structures that we can work with. So scientific laws or the units of reality that we think in terms of these atoms or some forces and other things that we can act upon and gain traction upon our world. This is all a form of abstraction that can be very effective scientifically, technologically. So much of our society is built around this sort of abstraction that we gain purchase upon reality as we, as we move away from particularity as we render things interchangeable, as we remove the, the features that dis differentiate ent entities from each other and treat reality almost as a reservoir of forces and entities that we can act upon. So it's a great tool for science, but it shapes the way that we view reality. So for instance, if we're thinking about the world more generally, it departicularizes reality. And it shapes the way that we think about the world in which we live. If you read the Old Testament, one of the things you'll notice is that it's a tremendously particular vision of reality. 
So human beings, as they're placed within the world, are placed within this deeply relational and metaphorically charged reality. If you look at the sacrificial system, for instance, the sacrificial system is based upon networks of analogy and relationship between entities and about the particularity of particular entities within this system. And so the difference between a bull or the difference between a sheep and a goat or the difference between um, different types of animals, one that has cloven hoof and another that doesn't and one that chews the cud, one that doesn't, these differences are significant in a way that they are not within modern society. We abstract, but within this society that we see within Scripture, there is a, an attention to particularity as something that reveals the significance of other particularities. So bringing these particularities into connection with each other illumines. So when we think about the world, the relationship between Israel and the nations is illumined by the relationship between the sacrificial system and particular animals and particular persons within Israel and those particular animals. And then outside, the differences between the animals that can be eaten, the clean animals, the unclean animals, the sacrificial animals, and the non-sacrificial animals, all of these help us to understand our place within the world by mapping particularities onto other particularities and multiplying these connections. And this is a way of viewing the world that you'll find in pretty much any ancient society, a way of understanding the world that pays attention to particularity, the world as a realm of significant and particular entities that are mapped onto each other. Now, when we think about male and female, this is important to bear in mind because male and female is perhaps the most important of these particularities within the created order. And it, male and female, in its turn, maps onto these different realities, and it's an, a matter of significance. So, for instance, it matters if your sacrificial animal is male or female because that difference is something that is meaningful. And it's something that exposes something about the reality of the world and the reality of us as human beings within it, as God's creatures and those called to serve him. So if we're to understand the Old Testament vision, we need to start off with an understanding of how we come at it with an understanding of abstraction, but yet how the Old Testament presents us, particularly the Old Testament, but the New Testament too, a vision of particularity. And so... For instance, we think about realities such as the more cosmopolitan vision that we have within our society. And we can often read that onto scripture. But the biblical vision of cosmopolitanism, which you very much have within the New Testament, is not a departicularization, but a reparticularization, a rooting in Christ who is a particular person out of a particular history, embedded within a particular place within the creation from which the whole is affected. And so there's a traversal of all these differences, not a movement beyond them. And often when we're thinking about the reality that God has placed us within, we seek to move beyond the differences within our society and to understand ourselves in abstraction from these. So when we're reading Genesis 1, as we will be later this morning, when we read something like the discussion of men and women, often we're reading that in terms of abstraction. It's important to bear that in mind and to think about how it changes our perspective when we think in terms of a very particular vision of the world where things are metaphorically connected to each other and where reality is 
a network of charged connections where there are analogies between different levels of reality. The heavens above and then the lower heavens, which reflect those, the sanctuary realm on earth, which represents those higher heavens, and how all those different realities are to be expressed in a sort of meaningful dance of um, the way that we live within this creation is choreographed by these connections between realities. So the world is not just a repository for things that are detached from each other. It's an ordered reality where things are connected together, where the particular identity of an entity matters, and we don't just abstract from that. A further thing to bear in mind about technological society is that it is a decondensed reality. So there's a good description of this by Sarah Perry. She writes, almost every technological advance is decondensation. It abstracts a particular function away from an object, a person or an institution, and allows it to grow separately from all the things it used to be connected to. Writing decondenses communication. Communication can now take place abstracted from face-to-face speech. Automobiles abstract transportation from exercise and allow further decondensation of useful locations, sometimes called sprawl. Markets decondense production and consumption. Now, a good example of this is thinking about something like the hearth. In traditional society, you have the hearth, which is not just a mechanism for giving the house heat. It's more than that. It unites a number of different realities and a number of levels of society. It has meaning as the central point of the family's life. We talk about hearth and home. It's the heart of the household. It's a realm that has a particular gendered meaning often. It's associated with the woman who's particularly associated with that. It's associated with the task of cooking. It's associated with the task of giving heat. It's a realm that has it can often have within societies a religious meaning too. And so all these realities are tied together within that object of the hearth. And we, within our society, we have a knob that you can turn and you can have central heating. Now that's a decondensation of the reality of the hearth, which abstracts from that reality the purpose, the function of heating your your home. And that's a great thing to have. It's great to be able to go into any room of the house and experience warmth without having to be huddled around the fire. But without that being huddled around the fire, part of a world starts to become looser. You're no longer telling the stories that you would tell in the past around the fire. The family's life is, has less of a um, force gathering it together. So whereas we have focal points of family life, the meal table and the hearth, as we start to have um, microwave dinners, as we start to um, watch TVs in our own rooms, as we start to have um, this heat within every room of the house, part of the gravity of the family's life that holds it together in this, the practical realities of the household it starts to become weakened. And so that's a decondensed reality. But decondensation works on many different levels. It works for the institution of marriage itself. So I've written in the past, the power of marriage and family as an institution arose in large measure from the vast array of functions that were condensed within it. Provision, security, welfare, health care, education, investment, employment, public representation, community, 
religious practice, etc. However, over the last few centuries, marriage has been radically decondensed, many of its former functions outsourced to other institutions or drastically reduced through new technologies. Whereas marriage was once a deeply meaningful necessity for people's physical and social survival, now it is steadily reduced to a realm of sentimental community. Without the force of necessity holding people together, the deeper integrating goods that marriage once represented are harder to perceive and its meaning is drastically diminished. Marriage becomes much weaker as an institution. Marriage once powerfully represented the condensed and integrated meaning of human sexuality, a deep mystery of the union of man and woman, the wonder of the other sex, and the deeper reality of our own, the most fundamental common project of all human society, the union of our most animal of drives with the highest of our ideals, the connection between our bodies and our deeper selves, the significance of the loving and committed sexual bond as the site where the gift of new life is welcomed into the world, the difference between human making and human begetting, the miracle of the development of new life, the wondrous natural blossoming of private sexual unions into public families, a bond that stretches over generations, the deep union of blood, the interplay and union of the sexes in all areas of human life and society, the maturation of man and woman together and in union through all of the seasons of their lives until they cross the threshold of death. So when we're thinking about marriage today, and the family, we need to think about the forces of decondensation that have acted upon it. The way that the reality of the family is no longer the condensed reality that it once represented, but many of its functions have been outsourced. And as a result, marriage is weaker, marriage and family are weaker in the proportion that we don't rely upon them in the same way. It's not integral to society. Most of these functions are be being performed by other agencies. And when you have that outsourcing of different functions, this decondensation, what tends to be a result of that is a focusing on the more functional, basic levels of needs and a lot of the higher um, realities of community and other things like that that are less tangible, um, less quantifiable, things like that. So if you're talking about the hearth, you still have, you can get heat. You can heat your house. But how do you measure what you lose in the focal point of a life of community within the household. It's hard to measure. And as a result, we are less attentive to those things that we lose through decondensation, to those core realities that integrate things towards a higher goal. Leon Cass talks about these sorts of things in relationship to eating. And so the meal table is not just a place for biological fuel and sustenance. It's a place of communion. It's a place of human fellowship and community it's a place of beauty. It's a place of tradition as you eating from the same plates, for instance, that have been in your family for many years. There's a sense of continuity through time, a ritual that you're repeating time after time, a beating heart of the family's life as you get together at every single meal table twice a day, maybe just once a day, but you're gathering together and it gives the community of the family something of its cohesion and its force and its power. And the meal table can also be a site where we encounter our humanity at a deeper level. It's one of our most animal actions, eating, but yet it's something in which we distinguish ourselves from the animals at every step. We don't wolf down our food. We don't, we're not those who are um, 
horsing around at the table. We're not to be pigs. In all these different ways, we distinguish ourselves from the animals, recognizing that this reality is not just about a basic function, but is about a relationship with the larger reality of the world that God has created and placed us within. So cooking, for instance, is something that takes the ingredients of the creation and makes them and transforms them and then uses that to create a relationship between the human being and the world. And so when we thank God for our food, there's a recognition that we depend upon what God has given us within his world, the transformation of that, and then being fed by the reality that God has placed us within, by his good gifts. But then the fact that in that transformation, human hands have been involved, that within the gift of food, we recognize the hands that have prepared as well, that that gift of food is something that we are united in the gift of a person who has prepared this food or persons. And so we appreciate their part that they have played, and we are united in the life of the family in their particular gift. All these acts can be easily decondensed within modern society, and as a result, it's more difficult to understand the core realities of the union between the human being and the world, the union between human beings and community, and our roots within the life of the body. When we think purely in terms of functionality and almost technique and technology, we can lose sight of these core realities that are absolutely at the heart of human existence. And so that's another aspect of modern technological society that we need to understand before we get into this subject. We're seeing this not just acting upon our unions, things like the family and marriage, but also upon the human being themselves. With medical technology, increasingly, we have the power to decondense the human body itself. So we think about, you can take um, sperm donation, or you can have egg donation, or you can have all these different things that decondense the body, that treat the body as a set of different functions that are assembled together in a particular person. In the future, we'll have the, or we're on the brink of having the power to create gametes from skin cells. So take a man's skin cell and we can make an egg from that and you can maybe grow a um, child in an artificial womb. And all of this is a decondensation of the body, a way in which we technologize the body and it shapes the way that we view ourselves because once we have that particular capacity, the natural reality is viewed almost as if it were a sort of technology. So it's a technique for reproduction. But the human body is reproduction 1.0. We may be on the brink of human reproduction 2.0, which will outmode it. But human reproduction is about far more than just a technique or a function in order to create new, new human beings. It's about deeper connections, our connection with each other, our connection with the body and the self, and our connection with our children. And so when we lose sight of that, often it's as a result of this decondensation of reality and the human person. A further thing that we need to bear in mind is commensuration. This idea that human beings can be measured, all, all reality can be measured relative to each other elements of reality. So we think in terms of forces and quantifiable realities. And this is one of the things that renders us powerful within the world, that we can abstract from the particularity of, for instance, 
a particular body of water, and we can think of water as such, and we can take particular human beings and abstract from the particularity of their identity, their background, their um, family relations, their locality, and we can treat them just as labor, a quantifiable person. And that's very helpful if you want to have effective systems and powerful um, structures within society. That way of thinking is not inappropriate, but it's something that limits us when we start to think about the relationship between the sexes, when we start to think about relationships between parents and their children, when we start to think about human community and these sorts of realities. So thinking in terms of the commensurability of people and of realities, one of the things that has taken on a significant charge in our discussions of sexuality and the sexes is a whole value of equality. And that is related to this, in part, this abstraction from the particularity of the person and the thinking in terms of the individual as a detached entity that is neither male nor female, that is detached from that um, generative reality of the human body, that is detached from the particularity of the human body in many respects, and becomes this abstract self, and then we think about how we can work with these abstract selves. And so you have male individuals, female individuals, individuals from all different backgrounds, nationalities, um, locations within reality. And again, that's very helpful if you want to work within a system, if you want to create a business, if you want to create a, a, an operate, a way of operating upon the world that is effective. It's a good way to think for that. But it's a very bad way to think about our relationships and our deeper identities. If we abstract from these realities, equality becomes the big thing because you have a large lineup of individuals, just detached individuals, and the question is how can you make them all equal? Now that's complicated when we have significant differences and we have, we have a rootedness within reality that places us within different positions within God's world. And that is something to bear in mind as we have, before we get into the conversations about men and women, to think about some of the questions that we bring to the text and why we bring those to the text. So equality is a big concern as a result of this. Rationalization is a further factor. Universal reason is a principle very much of modernity. This idea that human reality, that reality as such, can be framed in terms of a universal rational principle. The problem is that reality is not so easily represented. Reality has these quirks and particularities, and each one of our communities has its customs, its eccentricities, its idiosyncrasies, and when we lose sight of those, we tend to be limited in our understanding of who we are as communities, our attachments and their meaning, and we become very abstracted from the meanings within our lives that are most salient. One of the things that we find within a very scientific approach to viewing the world, this is a quote from E.A. Burt, which I think is very powerful to think, think about. The features of the world, now classed as secondary, unreal, ignoble, and regarded as dependent on the deceitfulness of sense, are just those features which are most intense to man in all but his purely theoretic activity. And even in that, except where he confines himself strictly to the mathematical method, it was in inevitable 
that in these circumstances man should now appear to be outside of the real world. Man is hardly more than a bundle of secondary qualities. And so when we think about reality in terms of universal rational rationality, universal rationalization, thinking about science as the technique and the paradigm within which to think about all reality, including human society, increasingly we are estranged from the world. And human society becomes a technique and a structure and a system that is estranged from our deep human bonds. And that understanding of creation, that understanding of the natural order, is something that has been very effective for scientific reasoning. It's an, a radical objectification of the reality that we find ourselves in. It's thinking of the reality purely in terms of those things that can be quantified, that can be established through a consensus of many different observers. But yet reality is a life world, a world within which we are at home. And this is the vision that we have, particularly within Genesis, and we see it elsewhere in places like Leviticus and throughout the Bible that this is, we are presumed to be at home within the world. This division between the subject who stands outside of reality and views reality purely as an object for um, their vision and their analysis and their reflection and their rationality and their technique, that estranges, estranges us from our connection to the world and our sense of embeddedness within it, that we are bound up with the world in which we, in, of which we are thinking. So as we're thinking about Genesis, one of the things I, I'll come back to is the image of humanity as placed within a larger dance. And placed within that larger dance, you can't abstract yourself and stand back and an, analyze it as if you were apart from it. We are placed within it, and we need to learn to move with it well. And that involves being attentive to our connections with things. That is not something that science is very good at teaching us, but it's something that is foundational to Christian and particularly Old Testament re reasoning. It's something that is prominent and, and it gives us a clarity and a sense of who we are within God's world. Fungibility is a final aspect of our reality that within modern society is very significant. Human societies and systems become more effective, they can become broader, they can become transplantable, they can become scalable as we start to think of people as more fungible and we establish people as more fungible. Part of this is an education into society. As human beings are rendered increasingly interchangeable, that you can take someone from one place and exchange them with someone else by ease of movement, mobility that we have a society built around the car, mass trans transport and things like that, and also around establishing human beings so they don't hold values that are too particularizing. So one of the things we have within modern society is an emphasis upon things like the values of tolerance, inclusion, these sorts of things, and the privatization of deep commitment and religious community and these sorts of things. Part of that is to enable the fungibility of human society, the fungibility of human persons, so that we can be interchanged with each other and be more effective within society's systems. Now, systems of society, as they abstract from the particularity and as they render things fungible, can be very effective. And again, this is not to say that these things are bad. It's to recognize that when that becomes a totalizing viewpoint, 
And another aspect of this is totalization, the idea that a logic can be opposed upon reality in its comprehensive character, not just upon certain... It's a certain way of grasping reality, but not the only way. Within modernity, we tend to think about, about it as if it were the only way, and as if all other forms of re relationship to reality had to be rationalized, and as if, as we m render things more fungible, we are rendering them more... Conform, we're conforming them to the fundamental reality of the world, which is objects within an objective system. So what we have is a society without a sense of analogy, a sense of the connections and the metaphorical bonds between things, and a world in which humanity is not at home, a world where humanity is often placed within systems that abstract us and uproot us, and disconnect us from our roots within the body, our roots within human relationships, our roots within community, and our deep grounding within the world of creation. And so the values that we develop from this are liberal values such as equality and our focus upon the individual. And these frame our readings of particularly passages like those, contain those relating to um, sexuality and sex. The human individual is the starting point and the point from which we go out. Now, if you want to understand why we've had such, there has been a complete sea change in our society on issues such as marriage and same-sex marriage. Why did same-sex marriage become thinkable? For years, same-sex, for human society, for most of its history, same-sex marriage has been a completely unthinkable prospect. prospect. Why is it that that changed? Part of the reason why it has changed is that marriage itself has, there's been a shift of poles, as it were, a change in the magnetic polarity of that reality. As we start to think of it, not in terms of a deep network of connections and the way that we protect and honor those connections, bind people together within those connections, adumbrate those connections with legal structures that enforce and regulate and encourage them, and to think of those connections very much as individual choices, as means of individual expression, and the way in which the individual has their right to have chosen affiliations with other persons. And so as the individual becomes the Copernican, there's a Copernican revolution with the individual being placed at the heart of reality, and the disconnection of the network of reality and the deep connections that we have with the body, with nature, with men and women, and with men and women and their children, the individual becomes the center of the family, becomes the center of marriage. And so what we have is what um, Mark Regnerus has talked about as a confluent vision of sexuality, where choosing individuals, autonomous individuals, their sexual choices converge for a period of time. They may diverge again at the future, but it's primarily about the individual choice and the ways that those align for periods of time. And so marriage is about a mutual agreement between individuals, preferably an agreement within which those individuals are largely interchangeable. And so when we're talking about same-sex marriage, for instance, same-sex marriage is not, is not just something that's added to marriage between men and women. It's a fundamental paradigm shift in the way that we view marriage for everyone. So marriage for everyone now is viewed as gender neutral. 
And the ideal is that which is represented by same-sex marriage. The idea that men and women should be interchangeable, that the partners within a relationship, there should be no imbalance between them on any level, that they should be interchangeable, that they're fundamentally performing functions such as parenting. And so these are all structures that we bring to our reality, our social reality, our natural reality, and that frame the discussion that we are having upon sex and sexuality within society and increasingly within the church. If you talk to many people within your churches, what you'll notice is that these assumptions are deeply embedded within them. These are assumptions that we've been trained in within our schooling, within our social lives, within our businesses, and more generally, these are the ways that we have been taught to think. So it's very difficult to step back and to recognize the water in which we're swimming. Before we get into this subject, then, we need to take account of these realities. Our increasing technological detachment from nature has shifted our accounts of gender into a more prescriptive and performative direction, while blinding us to the degree to which the scriptural account is grounded in the account of nature itself. So if you look at modern society, and this is within the church and without the church, there's an emphasis upon gender as something that is self-expressive. So you have this individual reality and you're trying to express yourself, and gender is what we call that. You're expressing your gender identity. There's not a deeper reality that you're grounded within that's given, that gives sense to who you are, that you're placed within that. Rather, it's a way of expressing the individual self. Now, as Christians speak to this reality, increasingly we emphasize rules and roles which are detached from that deep connection between these natural realities and our subjective expression of these things. So if you're thinking about, for instance, what does it mean to be a man or a woman, very much within our society we have these ways of acting that out. And Christians offer their own way of acting it out, a certain set of commandments that we get from Scripture. But if you read something like Genesis, if you read the Bible more generally, it doesn't actually tell us you should do this, you should do that, so much as it tells us this is just the way things are. This is the way that God has created the world. These are the connections that exist within reality, and this is how to get your bearings within the world that God has given us. And that shapes the way that we view these things. No longer focus so much upon rules and roles, this sort of performative way of thinking about what human identity is, but a way that's grounded within our embeddedness, of getting our bearings, of getting our sense of a connection to God's world, to each other, and within these larger networks of things, marriage and the family are ways in which we get our bearings. If you talk about, for instance, a lot of modern gender theory, someone like Judith Butler, performativity is a primary concept within her thought. The idea that gender is something performative, that the self enacts itself through its performance of gender. So it's not as if you have the self and then the self puts on the clothing of gender and dresses out, lives out their gender and lives it out in a self-expressive way that explains who they are. There's something even more radical than that, that the self constructs itself through the act of performance. And this, I think, is one of the effects of our detachment from these deep connections. So whereas in the past, 
An example of this, for instance, within modern society, if you're a man who wears a suit and a, and a hat, you're expressing your masculinity in a, very, in a way that will draw attention to yourself. If you did that a few generations ago, people say um, JFK was the guy who um, ended the tradition of American men wearing, top hat, uh, wearing hats in public. But whenever it happened, there was a shift and it became something self-expressive rather than being something expressing your belonging within a class of people who all dressed in the same sort of class uniform that this was expected of men. And so as we dress today, every single one of us is dressed differently. And each one of us is in some way or other expressing our individuality, except one of the things that you find within the church is wearing, uh, for instance, a collar or wearing clerical garments is a way of moving people's attention away from our individuality. It's not an expression of who we are as individuals, but an expression of who we are in the place that God has placed us within, that we are expressing something beyond ourselves, not just our individuality. The changing place of the family within modern society and of men and women in the modern economy radically shifts the way that we experience, consider, and locate the relationships between the sexes. So this is a further issue that we need to take into account. Many of our debates about the roles of men and women, things like that, are shaped by a reality that's been formed by some pretty significant social changes particularly arising from the Industrial Revolution, some more particular to our society, some resulting from later changes that have arisen as a result of reactions against industrial developments. And so, for some people, the vision is to get back to the 1950s. But if you look at the 1950s, in contrast to previous ages, to other societies, you'll see there's something in the 1950s, something radical had already been afoot for many generations. The 1950s is not a normal situation. It's not a healthy relationship between men and women more generally. And so we need to step back from our social situation and the questions that that imposes upon us and think more seriously about some of the sociological, the political, and the economic factors that frame the relationship between men and women within our society. This is one of the reasons I recommended as the reading for this course, Man and Woman in Christ by Stephen Clark, because he's one of the few people that actually gives this close attention. For most people, you have the framing in terms of the immediate questions of can women preach or um, is the husband the head of the family, these sorts of things, without actually stepping back and thinking what has the family become? What is the family in modern society as in contrast to the way that we see it within Scripture and within many traditional societies. So what I hope we'll get through this course, among other things, is a sense, a clearer sense of where we are standing as we're thinking about these issues. Not stepping, jumping into the debates with all our questions and all our assumptions, but taking, taking an inventory of our cultural assumptions, of our cultural background before we actually begin our, our inquiry. And then as we come to Scripture, to listen to Scripture, to be, to be attentive, that that's our primary posture to the text, not to answer our questions, but to be attentive first, and then as we practice that attention, 
that we will find the answers to many of our questions. And some of the questions won't be straightforwardly answered. We are often looking for answers to questions that the Bible does not give us. Rather, the Bible gives us the wisdom within which we will find a response. And a response is a different thing from an answer. A response is something that needs to be worked out practically that may not resolve a problem, but it's a way of approaching it, of engaging, of grappling with it. And that's what I hope that we'll get through this week, not a set of answers that you'll be able to have a prepackaged idea of where we want to get to and you'll be able to airlift people to this point and say, okay, these are the things that we need to do. It's more complicated than that. It's understanding where we stand, the biblical principles and ideals that we have, and then practical means by which we can relate those things together. Processes of deliberation when we're thinking about particular issues within the church, within society, and within the family. The pressing questions of the current context, the questions that we take to the biblical text, are ones that arise from a very novel sort of society, making it difficult for us to hear the Bible's own questions and concerns. And so we need to step back from these. Why does this topic matter? Why does the whole issue of the relationship between the sexes so matter within this current situation? One of the first reasons is because we need to attune ourselves to the biblical text. And the relationship between the sexes and the biblical teaching of the sexes is one of those points where it is most promising to actually get into the biblical understanding, the way of viewing things. Because so many of the differences between our culture and the biblical vision of the relationship between the sexes, so many of those differences are illuminating for the tensions that we have with biblical ways of viewing things more generally. So it's the, more, the more that we attune ourselves to the biblical teaching upon sexuality, the more that we'll be able to attune ourselves to its teaching on a wider range of topics. And so what I'm hoping through this course is that it won't just be about men and women and about sex and sexuality, but it will be about reading the Bible more generally, about reading society in the light of the Bible and through the Bible, and about reading our own position within these things. That it's not just about this particular topic, but it's about attuning ourselves to God's reality more generally. Recalibrating our thinking on this subject has much broader implications for our reading of Scripture and our understanding of God's truth. A second reason why it's important. The significance of questions relating to this subject in both the church and the world today, and the need for us to think deeply about it, has never been this has never been more pressing. As we see within our society, just about all of the pressing issues that we're facing within our society have some relationship to sex and sexuality. And we, it's very hard to get beyond that point within our social debates. We can talk about other issues as much as we want, but people won't hear us until we deal with this stumbling stone that people hear the biblical teaching and the um, Christian teaching on sexuality and sex, and they are offended by it. At a deep level, they are alienated by the Christian teaching on this subject. And unless we understand that sticking point, unless we understand how to speak to our culture's understanding, understanding where the culture is coming from, among other things, we will struggle to speak to many of our contexts. Third thing, 
The danger of our thought on these matters being framed by controversy in a manner that dulls our awareness of the proper biblical framing. So when we talk about sex and sexuality within the church and within society, so often it's in reaction against some teaching that's out there, some teaching that we find within um, the gay rights movement, for instance, or if we're thinking about in the church, about the role of men and women and the complementarian, egalitarian debates. And so they're framed by these conflicts and very much these party oppositions, which makes it very difficult for us to think more seriously about the biblical way of framing things, which is not just a series of oppositions to cultural positions and um, other positions within the church, but a deeply rooted positive vision for the relationship between men and women and their place within God's world. And that's what I hope we are going to get away from I hope you're going to get that from this week, that this is not just about how we disagree with the um, LGBT movement or as we disagree with some other movements that are out there and active within the church. It's primarily about how we ought to be faithful within the church and within the world. A further thing is the danger of a piecemeal approach to these questions. And so as we start with our social and ecclesiastical problems and we come to the scripture looking for answers we focus upon texts texts that will present us with this knockdown argument against these opposing viewpoints and so we have a lot of texts that are lined up these clobber texts for instance on um, uh, issues such as homosexuality and we put a lot of weight upon these detached texts what we lose in the process is a bigger vision of scripture and its positive presentation of what these things should be. So the state of the current gender debates in conservative Protestant circles, this is another thing that we need to take into account. I think it will become clear why this is so important as I go on. If you look at these debates, one of the things that you'll notice, first of all, is that there's an overly partisan framing between complementarians and egalitarians, that there's these two camps... And often we understate the differences within the camps and those camps are politicized in ways that create all sorts of tensions and difficulties and that create crosswinds for our discussion. It's very difficult to have a healthy debate when it's determined by partisanship, when it's determined by these camps within the church that are competing against each other. I would like to move us a bit beyond that So we're not framing things in terms of the fights that we're having within the church, but trying to pay attention to scripture as the primary thing. Then we can have the debates, but we need to root ourselves not in reaction against some opposing viewpoint and our need to conscript scripture to our cause, but in the concern to be attentive and responsive and responsible with scripture. And so that's not a reactive relationship. It's a responsive and responsible relationship. And this is where we should take our beginning. A further thing, the framing of our study by scriptural of scriptural teaching by controversy and the need to frame and the need to defend party lines leads to an inattentiveness to scripture's own terms. That leads to an inattentiveness to a lot of what scripture has to say on these subjects. So join this week. And Peter's going to be talking through the book of Song of Songs, 
one of the things you'll notice in many of the complementarian egalitarian debates is that they've tended to screen out things like the Song of Songs because they don't really present us with ammunition in the way that we might hope. And so rather than getting a positive vision of the relationship between the sexes, we are looking for ammunition against the other side. And that limits what we'll understand of Scripture. And it removes a lot of material from consideration. So if you look at many of the books that are written on these subjects, they are about the party line. They are about arguing against the LGBT movements. They are about arguing between complementarians and egalitarians and on these particular hot-button issues. But it's very hard to understand those issues properly unless you've taken into account things like the Song of Songs. And so hopefully within this week we'll have a broader understanding of the scriptural teaching on these matters. Alongside this, there's a narrowing of biblical attention onto key proof texts, and even within those proof texts, onto key terms. So what is the desire of the woman? What does it mean to have authority over in 1 Timothy 2? What does it mean to be the helper? All these sorts of questions, or what is the head? All these key terms start to assume immense weight because we're looking for trunks of argumentation upon which to rest this grand system of agendered theology. And as a result, what we often find is these texts crumble under the weight. They don't sustain the weight that we want them to sustain. And so either you have very tendentious arguments being made on the basis of these texts, or you end up having this situation where, okay, we just don't know what that text means. It just comes down to a judgment call. And that judgment call is a matter, I mean, you can choose how you want to read it. Why would you want to read it in a way that is, that is intolerant or bigoted? Why would you want to read it in a way that rules out the possibility of same-sex marriage or something like that? That is an approach that comes as we approach Scripture from our cultural presuppositions and questions rather than being attentive to Scripture itself. What I believe that we find within Scripture is that there are not a key set of proof texts that are designed to bear all of the weight. Rather, what we have is a, a deep network of a root system of biblical typology, of narrative, of teaching, of wisdom, and all connected together that can bear immense weight collectively. But if you take any individual strand of that, it can easily be separated and snapped off. But taken together, it bears a lot of weight. And this is the way that I think we should approach the Scripture. And a typological reading of Scripture, I think, gives us an understanding of the strength of Scripture as a unified body of teaching. A further thing that we need to take into account is if we approach the Scripture primarily as a book to help me force my neighbor to be faithful, we'll find it gives us far fewer resources than if we're approaching it as a book to help us to be faithful. Because there are many ways in which you can see your, the servant that's next to you being unfaithful to his master, and you might try and insist upon his learning faithfulness rather than being attentive to your master yourself. As Christians, our primary duty is to set our own house in order and to respond to Christ ourselves, to be those who are not trying to um, perform the master's work for, hi for him in a, way that, in a way that assumes his place over other servants. 
Now, we need to have these arguments. The arguments are important. But the scripture is not given to us primarily for that. And so if you find the scripture is not giving you the sort of ammunition that you want, it's not giving you the sort of clear knockdown arguments that you want to defeat the other side, well, that may be because the scripture wasn't given primarily for that purpose. As we read the scripture and we think about it as it relates to our own lives, we'll see a lot of ways in which an attention to it on those terms enables us to be faithful. And it enables us to see things that our neighbor may refuse to see, stubbornly refuse to see. But we can see quite clearly as we are attentive. And so that's our focus this week, not arguments against other sides. Although those those will come up in passing. But how can we be faithful within our situation? There's a relative neglect of biblical narrative and wisdom literature as sources of insight on male and what it means to be male and female. So I'll give a lot more attention to that than you'll find within most treatments, which are focused very much upon the more di- directly didactic parts of Scripture, epistles and law, these sorts of genres of Scripture. Whereas it, most of the body of Scripture is narrative, wisdom, prophecy, these sorts of things, and that has much to teach us. And so if we ground our understanding more within those forms of teaching and approach the more directly didactic forms of scripture, in light of that, I think we'll have a a firmer grasp of what it's teaching. A final thing about the state of the current debates is there's a dearth of peripheral vision in relationship to the subject. And as a result, we have narrow biblicist approaches. Now, those biblicist approaches are the sort of approaches that are just about proof texting a lot of the time and about focusing upon the meanings of detached texts and the terms within them. And so it's not even a very strong, it's not a strong biblical approach. I hope what we'll get through this week is a stronger biblical approach to these questions, but also a peripheral vision. So as we think about the insights of other disciplines, I'm hoping that we can integrate these into our Christian vision of the sexes. So things like biology or sociology or philosophy or the arts and these sorts of things have much to teach us about the relationship between men and women. If we think purely in terms of proof texts, if we think purely in terms of the biblical teaching, detached from what we learn from nature, from society, and from just being embedded in the realities about which scripture is talking, we'll miss a lot. And so the alternative approach that I'm hoping to present here is an emphasis upon the extensive root system of biblical teaching over isolated trunks of proof texts, an emphasis upon our own attentive faithfulness to scripture over winning arguments against our theological and cultural opponents, an integration of biblical teaching with insight from the natural and social sciences, closer attention to our cultural and social context and how it affects our thinking on this subject, and more careful attention to biblical categories of thought for understanding biblical teaching. And so we're going to take a break now for about five minutes. We'll come back and we'll look at Genesis chapter 1.